I am Ash Warlock. I'm Sachin Ranja. And I'm Zach Barlock. And this is the 2020 Bahrain Grand Prix. Right, let's get into it. Um, obviously, we kind of have to start on a, well, a sobering note. We have to mention the the horrific accident at the start of the race um, that led to one of the most scariest of scenes that I've ever seen in an F1 race live. Um, just to, I'm, I'm sure most of you guys listening to this would have seen the footage, um, so I won't labour too much on that, but simply Grosjean got in, into an altercation coming out of turn three with Kvyat, um, leading to him sort of spinning towards the wall, not spinning, but verging towards the wall in a massive crash. Uh, his car basically exploded on impact, um, and I think all of us at the symposium watching the race were kind of fearing the, the worst at this point. Thankfully, now Grosjean escaped from this accident with only um, burns to his hands. And I say only because the result could have been much, much worse. We'll, we'll unpack all of that later. But just first of all, from you guys, um, Zach, first of all, what what were your initial thoughts when seeing this live on TV? Uh, well, my initial thoughts were, oh, wow, that is enormous. And I think that's probably something that yeah. everybody would have thought. But for, for me personally, I was thinking back to Spa last year um, because I, I was in Spa. I was at Eau Rouge when Antoine Hubert had his accident where his car was also ripped into two pieces. And the immediate realisation was, oh, no, are we going to be in a, another situation where we have a driver killed in an accident where his car's been ripped in half? And my thought was then, well, hang on, Roman Grosjean's got a wife and two kids. That would be, I mean, it was pretty painful last year seeing that. It would be devastating if that happened uh, this time. But thankfully, it, it didn't. But I just, I was lost for words. And, and for people who know me well, they know that I can talk for England and that I'm very rarely lost for words. But yeah, it was just absolutely incredible to see. And, and it's just such a relief to see that he got out of that. Okay, it's incredible. Ashwin, you're you're nodding a lot. Are you nodding because you think that Zach can talk for England, or or you do you share those sentiments? I jumped out of my chair when I saw that. that no, was no, crazy. Both, both things. Um, Zach can talk for England. He can talk very eloquently for England. But but um, on the accident itself, yeah, it was it was massively shocking. Just the the sudden burst of like iridescent, bright orange flames. It, it it's like reminiscent of the um, I think it was Joss Verstappen who in the pit lane had a load of flames in the nineties. Yeah, Hockenheim ninety four. Yeah. Yeah, if you if you YouTube that, so Max Verstappen's dad um, in the pit lane, I think they had a fuel spillage of some kind, and that exploded in bright orange flames, like a like a like a Bunsen burner from its cool, and and you know it, that's that's what this reminded me of, just the just the sudden combustion, um, and you know I spoke to my dad, and and he said you know it, it's quite quite an old school accident, um, stuff you used to see in the past where the fuel in the car was less properly sealed off when cars used to break up into pieces far more easily than they do now now you know they disintegrate and they break up in different ways to reduce impact and forces but in the past they because they were mechanically unsound they used to genuinely just break up and, and that he that that reminded him of this and um it, it was just massively shocking for me because from I, i've only been watching formula one since like 2007 and um as a result i can become very complacent about driver safety and and you know that how dangerous the sport is yet you know i shouldn't be i've seen felipe i think it was massa get hit in the head you know i've seen you know Jules bianchi now uber uh and now and now grosjean and then you know thank god grosjean has, has escaped with with minor burns because it, from, from our perspective as, as lawrence said it was a pretty shocking incident um just, just the vivid the vivid the vividness of the of the, of the flames and, and then the warped metal barrier that was left behind in the kind of post-mortem was just, you know, it was like something out of a horror film. Yes, um, Sachin, you, you're a big follower of IndyCar, so you would have seen your fair share of crashes. And, and I think we as in motorsport tend to fetishize that as as excitement, as as drama. But when you see an accident on this level, it doesn't it, it doesn't seem exciting at all. It's, it's frankly scary. Yeah, I mean, in IndyCar, it's quite regular to see flames, cars in the air flying about and wheels left, right and centre. But, you know, when you do see, even in IndyCar, when you do see these things, it's usually on the oval races where there is 
you know, the safety trucks was what they called. They're called, I think, with, at every at, at the inside of the track at every single point, and they're there in literally seconds, and the drivers almost immediately extracted from that. Within, yeah, one. I mean, we've not seen anything. We haven't seen fire. We haven't seen cars splitting in half. We haven't seen barriers splitting open in ages. It's almost an unthinkable occurrence. Yeah. Last time that happened, that a car pierced through a barrier was 1974 in Watkins Glen. So it's been a very long time. Long time then. And and it happened the previous year as well in Watkins Glen, didn't it? Yeah, 73. So it's Francois Sever and Helmut Koenig were both killed in in accidents like that at the same track. Yeah. Yeah, and Sachin, I do going back to you. I mean, clearly this this the way that the car sort of crashed and exploded was not natural. Um, I think a lot of people at home were wondering just like of of course the fire was caused by some sort of fuel leak right couldn't have been anything else but how could it be that first of all the I mean there's so so much to unpack but I'll ask first of all why did why was there such a massive explosion because um, we've seen crashes before no no fire on this level yeah well I think to understand this you need to understand how the car impacted upon the barrier. So Grosjean went more or less head in to the Armco barrier. In doing so, somehow his car pierced through the, the layers of Armco and he essentially went straight through and the halo, the central halo pillar, pushed the Armco barrier up and over his head. In doing so, almost certainly protecting his head from being severed off. So the halo did its job in protecting the driver. The car continued to go through the barrier until it came to the roll hoop, which was strong enough to stop Grosjean and the rest of the car going straight through onto the other side. Now, with the safety cell, which is where the driver sits uh, wedged in the barrier, the only way for the energy of the crash, which was, I think, 53G impact, the only way for that energy to be dissipated was if the main mass of the car, which is at the at the back where the engine, the electricals, the gearboxes, the only way for the energy to be dissipated if, is if that mass kept on moving down the track. And the only way for that to happen was was the rear of the car to come detached from the safety cell happen. Which I think that I was reading they are connected by six steel pins, which basically got cut away essentially and broken off and that's why the car split in two now at that splitting point is where the fuel tank and the engine meets so that is why there was some leakage still unknown whether the fuel which ignited was from the fuel collector or was actually from the fuel tank but fuel leaked somewhere and that caused the ignition. I mean, at the end of the day, if Grosjean's car did not get stuck in the barrier, if you look at other accidents, like Kibitza's in Canada in 07 when he hit the concrete wall, mm-hmm. Grosjean will most likely have been rebounded back onto the racetrack, which may pose some danger in itself, but the back of the car would not have come, come attached and there probably wouldn't have been a fire. I mean, does right. that... Does that um, I mean, the the reason why that makes me uncomfortable is that um, the bouncing back to the track then brings the kind of Hubert possibility into play. Yeah, uh, that, that, is, the, that is the risk. Yeah. So we have having the Hubert. I mean, I can't remember. It was like last race. I said this to you, one of you. There was an incident, and I can't remember who it was. It might have been Albon, who, who spun, and his car was like, the back, rear of his car was on the track, and almost someone drove right past and missed him by like a foot. Yeah, I think it was Hamilton. Yeah, was it Hamilton? And, yeah. and that, that was that's something that terrifies me. So, I mean, the bouncing back into the track's not pleasant. Well, that happened, I was having a look at Kimi Reichen in 2014 at British Grand Prix when he lost it in the Wellington Strait, if you remember. Mm. Again, more or less head-on into a guardrail. And he rebounded back on across the track and took out Chilton and a few other cars. Mm. So, you know, it is... 
it's like yeah. uh, you, this is where the FIA have to come in and figure out what's best for safety. Yeah. You know, is, is a car coming back onto the track better than a car getting shoved stuck in a barrier? Which may be the case now with the halo proven to be again a safety device to for a car to get lodged halfway into a barrier. But yeah, just to just to clarify, so you're saying that so it's all about where the energy is dissipating in the crash. So um, Grosjean hit the barrier at like 140 miles an hour, causing, as you say, 53 Gs of force, which is like nine times the, the most di- like dangerous roller coaster in the world. Uh, just for reference for you guys, um, and that energy has to go somewhere. If he rebounds off the wall, it kind of dissipates into the air, right? Is that what you're saying? But oh, then, no. if he rebounds off the wall, then he has the whole bit of track which he can slowly slow down, essentially. Right. Right. If he's stuck in the wall, then all the energy is going to either go through his body and will probably sh- crush the safety cell in a sense, will damage the safety cell, which, where right. Grosjean is being kept. Right, so yeah. the FIA have built safety measures in where things fail in a certain order to protect the driver's safety cell. So instead of the driver's safety cell failing and it crushing or something, other things fail first. So... The engine, the back of the car coming off was one of those mechanisms that, that one of those fail saves that because it went, the Grosjean was safe in his safety cell. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Okay. I understand. And I, I think it's a good way to like kind of segue into um, sort of the aftermath of the accident because as we know, it's a massive fire. Grosjean is still in the car at the point of impact. Um, it's a miracle that it wasn't just thrown from the car in, in quite a dangerous fashion. Um, as you said, right, quite rightly, Sachin, the fact that the halo existed allowed his head to be protected from the steel barrier um, when the car got wedged into it. But of course, we had to deal with the fire. And this is where we have to give massive thanks to um, the FIA, med- FIA medical car people, uh, Dr. Ian Roberts and Alan van der Merve, who were straight on the scene. There were like some heroic images floating across the internet of of um, it's, it's Ian Roberts who just dives headfirst yeah. in the flames to help Grosjean get up. Um, Zach, great heroism from those two people and the Bahraini marshal with the fire extinguisher. Um, I think Grosjean spent something like 20, 29 seconds in the car uh, whilst it was in fire. And, and it's it was a great job from everyone involved to get Grosjean as far away from that car as possible. Yeah, it was absolutely incredible. I mean, for, for Dr. Ian Roberts, as well, given that his helmet is an open face helmet, so he was not getting any protection in terms of uh, from from his skin from from the flame, and it was very risky for him because he could have been burned himself. Um, but you could just tell that all their training has paid off in that it has saved a driver's life. He was able to help the fire marshal uh, get the fire extinguisher going in a way that would al- al- allow Grosjean to get back out of the car over the barrier, and the fact that. Uh, uh, Dr. Ian Roberts was willing to get as close to the car to basically drag Grosjean over the barrier, uh, or at least he, he would have done if he if he had Grosjean had been jumping anyway, was remarkable. And the, and the bravery of doing that is incredible. And then for Alan van der Merwe as well, he's, you know, he's a racing driver. He's not a, a medic. He's not he's not naturally used to this sort of stuff. So for him to jump into action in the way he did was was heroic. And I know that we've been talking a lot recently about should Lewis Hamilton get a night ahead. I think Dr. Ian Roberts deserves some uh, some recognition more than anyone else because to to do do that to to run a fire like that just to try and save someone else's life there's no there's no doing it for the for the credit or anything like that it is his job and he he just did it so well I think he he deserves some some credit for that. I don't know what 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 you guys will think of it and, and also the people listening but no, I yeah I think he should he should be given uh, an honor before anyone else no I think I, I 100% agree I mean um it, it was the images are heroic in themselves, but it's just um, pretty remarkable that Grosjean got away um, in the state that he did. And obviously, everyone's very grateful for that, and uh, shows that you know, although obviously improvements are you know need to be made, especially now and we'll do a review. It does show the kind of developments in safety that the uh, Formula One has undergone in the last 20, 25 years for this to even be a case of um, you know a driver walking away and i suppose there were a lot of de- there was a lot of debate around the halo when it was introduced but it's it's done its job and i don't think anyone could complain about its existence now absolutely yeah grosjean 
po uh, posted a video from the uh, military off uh, hospital he was taken to after the accident, saying he was fine. But you know, thank God for the halo, and um, the, it's basically made sure that he was able to post that video. You know, in the end, and I think that um, yeah, the safety measures that have been put in place have done their job to an extent. But also, we kind of have to ask ourselves, what can we do in the future to prevent this kind of accident from happening? A lot of people have spoken about what kind of barrier to put. Because, I mean, it has to be noted that Grosjean crashed into a barrier on a straight, which is not where you usually expect yeah. accidents to happen. They weren't near a corner. So I guess that affected the kind of barrier that the FIA decided to put into place, actually. Um, what could we do in the future to to mitigate these kind of uh, accidents uh well you know we have several technologies out there at the moment so we still we have the the tire barriers which everybody's seen we've had we have water barriers which was thrown in i think in the sochi f2 crash this year we saw them being put in use we've got techro barriers which are very evident at monaco especially at the nouvelle chicane and then we have um we find more in america are these safer barriers which I think the only place which there are on the F1 calendar is in Canada, where I think Stroll and Hartley had their crash at that corner, and then at the final corner of Brazil. Uh, I mean, these safer barriers are used more or less at every single level in your car races at. And they're more for side-on high, high uh, load impacts, while you have your Tecra barriers, which are more for the head-on impacts. Which is why we usually find at the end of hairpins and stuff like that street circuits. But, but you know, these Arco barriers, they, to be honest, they've done their job for the past however many, you know, 20, 30, 40 odd years. Every street track has them. Most racetracks in the world, Silverstone including, have them. And they've not really failed. So this may be a freak accident. Maybe they'll find something in their investigation where they've seen, okay. The barrier wasn't assembled properly. This is why it, it cracked open. But it did seem a bit odd how we've raced with these barriers for so many years. We've had Im impacts on the straight before. It is not the first crash in a straight on a straight we've had. So questions do need to be asked. And we do need to figure out. So, I mean, for example, with, with Hubert's accident, they concluded in the end that it was just a freak accident and nothing. There's more or less nothing they could do due to the nature of the corner where he crashed that it was just a freak accident. They may conclude the same thing here that, you know, it was a freak accident. But, you know, this is what the FIA are meant to do. They're meant to investigate the extremities of what's possible under crashes and figure out if there's any way they could stop it. I mean, I, I was going to say that before, before Lawrence uh, asked the question, is that I, I used to kind of discuss on the pod about you know, arguments in favor or against like refueling um, in terms of strategy, in terms of spectacle. But now this is kind of fundamental, like firmly put me off that kind of possibility of reducing that, although it was unlikely ever to be reintroduced just because of the kind of fire risk and those images is kind of burned in my mind. Um, it put me off much like this discussion on that, certainly, um, which I think is, is you know, fair, fair enough. And, and on that, on the kind of barrier issue, I, I kind of agree that I don't, don't really know what much more could be done in the maybe replace that barrier with a water barrier as we saw in Sochi, but it's just not, it's not really, in a, it's, it's literally in, on, on a straight and in an area you'd never expect a car to really hit, to be honest. It's not at the end of a braking zone. It's not like it carrying on a, a car just brakes failing. Like it would have to be like a very, very unlikely situation for a car to ever really crash in, crash on into a barrier in that location. So I, I'm not really sure what reforms could be undertaken there. Um, but, but I think, I mean, what was more interesting for me, I think, was the, the, the reactions of different drivers, whether it's Verstappen, Leclerc or, or Ricardo, um, which I'm sure we'll get on to. And that, that was, I think, quite illustrative of F1's attitude to safety these days as well. And perhaps driver psychology. Yeah, let, let's get into it. Um, we saw a number of drivers, like, because obviously this crash caused a red flag, which led to a delay of about an hour and a half as the barriers were being repaired. Um, we saw on TV a number of drivers clearly shaken after an accident, not least Kevin Magnussen in the sister Haas car. Um, yeah, a whole F1 paddock in shock 
and they had to go back to racing. Like, that must be psychologically so difficult after you've seen one of your own in such a scary accident, Zach. Yeah, absolutely. Because you know you're going out there and about to do exactly the same thing that's led to that accident. And you also, in those circumstances, really realise about what the consequences are of what you're doing. And it's very easy to overlook that when you're not seeing an accident like that. But as soon as you see the accident, you think, oh, not only is it possible, but it's just happened. So it's, it's very difficult to overcome as well, because there would have been concern for, is he okay? And it would take time naturally for people to calm down. I think, all right, he's, he's okay. He got out the car on his own. I can get back into my, my mojo for the race. That's, that's such a difficult thing to do. And yeah, I, 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 I don't think any of them particularly did recover that well in terms of the psychological aspect. You can argue some better than others, but I, I don't think any of them really felt absolutely fine as though nothing happened when they got back into the car. They, you could just tell from the way some of them were driving, they were a little bit more cautious on the straights and stuff like that. They knew, don't be stupid, not all of them. Not all, you know, some of them were pretty reckless, but by and large, they, they just had to accept it was going to happen. And and get on with the race and just and just know that it's happened, but I can't change it now. Let's just affect my driving and change my driving to try and stop it from happening. And that would apply all across racing series. I mean, these these guys will have, were in carts, and and I've seen some pretty nasty karting accidents, and everyone's had to do exactly the same thing. You know, seen a cart mount another cart. You just have to put that out of your head and get in the cart and go and do your race. It's just how it is. So there should be a bit more accustomed to going through that process, albeit this being on a far worse scale than they've ever been through before. Mm-hmm. Ashwin, there was um, there was some fierce criticism from Daniel Again, I, I spoke about of, of crashes. Um, Ricardo clearly thought it was inappropriate given the nature of this accident to keep broadcasting it. Um, I'm not sure whether I agree. What What are your thoughts? No, I completely disagree. Um, the FIA did the right, they struck the right balance here, in my view. They didn't show on the onboard of Grosjean's car. They didn't show the the impact with the wall. They stopped the footage, so they just showed the shunt from Kvyat, and then they stopped it, which is fair enough. I mean, children are watching; it's daytime show. They, but on the other hand, they they showed the fire going off a few times because it, it's a spectacle. It's something that's 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 interesting to watch. It's worth watching. You don't want to just read about you know a car exploding into flames it's it's um something that that deserves to be seen just because of it is and how much of a spectacle it is it's a slightly macabre point to make but um you watch a formula one as you watch boxing as you watch other motorsport because of the possibility of because of the, the adrenaline that you get from these people putting themselves on the line in a manner that you don't get in i don't know like basketball or football or or tennis or something and that's part of the reason why people watch because it's on an on edge it's technically a difficult sport and and you know you you watch it as a result and you deserve to see the footage as a result now now that's a completely diff- different question entirely as to whether they should have shown it in the pit lane in to the extent that they did and shown the accident because then that affects the driver's psychology but max verstappen responded pretty fiercely and said you know if, if you can't race after seeing replays of that you should give your seat to someone else. And I wonder what people's thoughts were on that, because that's pretty strong. Anyone want to section? Yeah, I mean, in my in my opinion, I, I more or less agree with Ash in this case, that, you know, the F1 have, F1 TV have very strict guidelines on how they take on these situations. I mean, it hasn't really changed at all, more or less, since since, I guess, Massa's accidents as well, all the way back to 2009, where they don't show the footage of the crash until they know the driver is okay. As soon as Grosjean was out and we could see him walking, uh, yeah, the footage was more or less distributed to all the networks. Everyone was seeing it. It was different degrees of caution. I mean, I know on the Sky coverage, they didn't show... They only showed the, the shots from the helicam and from the cameras, which are quite far away from the incident and not too up close, but in terms of Daniel Ricciardo's comments, 
I, I think it's a bit harsh to judge Daniel's comments because we don't really know what was being shown in the pit lane. I have a feeling that 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 clip was more or less on repeat, which would have been very, you know, it, it's not comfortable to watch once or twice the mind ten times over if you are on the pit lane waiting for an hour watching the, the same clip again and again for a roping accident. And in regards to Max's comment, I think Max, he, he, he was a bit a bit harsh with his comments of, oh, if a driver doesn't want to drive, I'll fire him out of the car. But it's kind of like, I think Paul DeResta was talking about this on, on the coverage. You know, these F1 drivers, they can't have any indecision when they go for a move, oh, that I may end up crashing the car, oh, I may get hurt. They have to fully commit or you, you do end up in trouble. If you're indecisive in these situations, this is where... I guess crashes lead to and I guess this is a, a good segue I guess onto Kvyat and Stroll's incident where you could hardly say if Kvyat went for the move properly he could have made it stick but he was indecisive whether to go or not and he ends up somersaulting Stroll yeah um exactly let's move on to that crash we thought after the safety car not safety, the red flag restart we'd, we'd be done with all the dramatic crashes but uh, lo and behold on lap two um Kvyat leaves his car on the apex uh, of the i'm not sure what corner it is but of a corner and stroll tries to come around the outside and gets flipped upside down um zach do you see this in the same way as Sachin does i, I the stewards awarded Kvyat a 10 second time penalty which i thought was slightly harsh um but yeah, I mean, did, Stroll did end up upside down, leading to a very funny radio, which is just like, like in a very monotone voice, is like, okay, I'm I'm upside down now, okay, I'm just gonna wait here. Um, what did you think of the crash sack? Well, I have to say, I I, I I think that actually the penalty was was very much deserved because again, it was hesitation. If he had committed, if he had taken his foot off the brake and, and rolled a bit with a bit more speed into the corner, it would have been a perfectly safe overtake. It was the wheel to wheel contact that caused the uh, the flip. And yeah, it, it is the same argument of you either commit completely or you don't step in the car because you will potentially cause an accident. So I don't think it was unfair. I think. At the same time, maybe Danny could have thought, you know what, I could I could get him in other corners as well. It's, it's the first lap, the field's still bunched up. I know he, he's trying to make the most of every opportunity, but it just seemed a little bit, little bit like he was a rookie almost in, in that sort of mistake to to have this this hesitation. And maybe there is a psychological effect from from the accident because he was involved in, in Grosjean's crash. But no, I, I think Kvyat got what he deserved. And I don't think he deserved anything more than that, but I don't think he deserved anything less either. He he, he really, it was just a weird, weird thing to do to just not, not commit or to then back out too late. It's just, you, you were a racing driver and you've, you've been around for long enough now where that really shouldn't have happened. But yeah, yeah, that's, that's pretty much what I have to say on that one. It's, yeah. it's, it's pretty, pretty fair. Fair enough. Um, I think that, yeah, uh, this will be one of Kvyat's last races in Formula One, and as his his front left tire certainly had a had a field day. Um, yeah, it seems kind of macabre. I don't know what you guys think of. I mean, I will we will go on to discuss the race itself, but it feels weird to do so given that what happened on on lap one. Um, yeah, I think all, many of the drivers kind of felt that way. I mean, I I commented on the group chat saying that. Charles Leclerc kind of looked a bit too emotional for my liking in, in kind of, I guess, Verstappen-esque comments. Um, because, yeah, he had his head in his hands and he didn't know. He just looked completely, like, flabbergasted. Um, and he had to continue with the race. Um, uh, yeah. I mean, what I don't understand, I mean, maybe this is just me being an uneducated fan, but I don't understand. I know that seeing, seeing something is but I don't understand how someone can go through the ritual of putting on flame-proof underwear, flame-proof balaclava, flame-proof full-body suit, get into a carbon-fibre tub, which has a massive fuck-off engine strapped to the back of it, and basically be under any illusions at all about what could potentially happen to you should the, should the brakes that, you, that basically your life depends on fail while you're moving at 200 miles an hour. 
Like, and, I, and then the fact that they're so surprised just kind of slightly puzzles me because, you know, it, I thought that that would all kind of be factored in to them getting into the car, especially considering how long... That's just massively, from my perspective, in that, you know, maybe it's completely different if, you know, something happens in real life that you think could merely happen. Um, I don't know. But, but it just seems... I mean, Zach, you look slightly... Over. I, I think I think for for Leclerc it's a it's a bit more complicated though because he was I mean well Jules Bianchi was his godfather and Antoine Hubert was one of his childhood friends so I think maybe for him it's more the realization of it's another accident with I mean he's probably going to have a, a relative degree of closeness with the French drivers and that would include Romain Grosjean so maybe that would explain Leclerc's reaction potentially. That that was that was my initial reaction, but then uh, as well talking about the uh, the going through all the all the processes of putting the fireproof gear on, I think the thing is you have to drown out the thought of being in an accident because that's the only way you can mentally get yourself in the car. If you think of a, a Grosjean style accident, you're never going to want to get in the car, and let alone race fast, which is what they're there to do. So I think I mean, maybe that's just a, a counter argument. Uh, there'll be people who will disagree with me for sure. But, it should yeah. also probably be noted that the last time an F1 car caught fire in a crash was in Imla 89 when Gerhard Berger crashed at the old Tamburello corner and it's caught in flames after it came directly. F1 drivers may have not gone through their, may have gone through their entire careers without seeing a car on fire. For all the junior forms, they're so safe nowadays. So, you know, it's not like in the old F1 days where, you know, drivers came up witnessing their fellow junior drivers involved in lanes and still make it out or not make it out it's it's not something they're used to and mm. with respect to with to Grosjean I mean off the tra- on the track he may not be that well respected as a driver but I think off the track he is quite a liked character you know he's head of the GPDA the, Gr- the Grand Prix Drivers Association he is one of the forefront figures on safety driver and how drivers and the car safety. So he's very well respected off the track and very well liked. Right, very well said, everyone. Um, I think we will move on. I know I just moved back onto it, but let's let's move on to the race itself. Um, yeah, Hamilton basically led from start to finish in this race, a pretty typical Lewis performance, um, managed to tie superbly. Um, just He was just faster than the rest of the, the pack today. And, and his, his teammate Bottas had some, it has to be admitted, terrible luck, guys. Um, he's, I think some of the leftover damage from Grosjean's car, some debris, uh, caught one of Bottas's tyres, causing a puncture. And that pretty much ruined his race from there. Um, it's pretty unlucky, right, Zach? I mean, yeah. Yeah. I think within the context of the Bahrain Grand Prix, yes, it was very unlucky. I think... There are, there are lots of other instances in the year where that would also apply. Uh, but as, as a whole, for, for Valtteri across the entire season, I'm not so sure that I would say it's all bad luck. I mean, to an extent, you do make your own luck in Formula One. And if you take races like Turkey, that was a pure missed opportunity where actually the issues were being caused by him not being able to control the car as well as other drivers. So, yes, I, I'd say with, within the context of, of Bahrain, he, he most certainly was unlucky two punctures it was just i mean that's just one puncture in a race is bad luck twice just ridiculous but i i would make a distinction between an individual race and an entire championship because i don't think we could we could call it as the the same Ashwin, do you agree i mean i've written in the running order you know bottas has had a new, numerous instances throughout the year that have cost him potential weight race wins i'm thinking the puncture in um silverstone um, the the debris at Imola, that massive piece of Ferrari stuck in his car. Um, the, obviously, the the, the power fa- failure in in the Nurburgring. Um, he has been unlucky, which goes some way to explaining that massive points deficit. Is it enough? Okay, so it's. Well, I mean, it, it's <laughs> the simple answer, but I think it's the correct answer as usual. Probably, yeah, Ockham's razor. Just that that. Um, the, the points deficit which can be attributed the points which can be attributed to mechanical failure are not his fault and the points that can be distributed to him spinning six times in a single Grand Prix are his fault and I think that you can make a differentiation between those two things rather than trying to extrapolate you know an entire 
uh, you know, attribute an entire segment of luck or, or, or fault to him over an entire season. He has no doubt been unlucky in individual instances, but he has also simultaneously been stupid and reckless in other instances, or at least not up to the standard of a driver should be if he's been bequeathed such a quality car. Now, has his driving as a result been overall over the season subpar to what the car should be able to do? Yes, but at the same time, he's probably driving against the most talented driver ever, so is it a fair comparison? I don't know. Point being, he's on both. He, he's simultaneously both been unlucky and particularly poor at points. And I think it's fair to say that he's been both. Now, there's, there's some aspects of making your own luck. If he performed better in one Grand Prix, he might have to push less hard in, in another one, which can lead to maybe a, a few accidents or pushing the car less hard mechanically than he would. So it, it all connected, as Zach said, but I think you can attribute, I think both things can exist at the same time. Okay, fair, fair enough. Um, I, I, I just wanted to offer some love for Bottas because it's been a pretty awful year for Which him all round. Bottas 7.0, 8.1.1, 9.1.3. Oh, Jesus. I don't know. I don't Bottas know. Bottas minus one at the moment. <laughs> Bottas re- retired. Marshmallow Bottas. What operation <laughs> are we on now? Um, yeah. Uh, Sachin. <laughs> <laughs> Verstappen came second, got fastest lap as well. Um, showed great pace this race, nowhere near the Mercedes, Mercedes of course. Of um, it was his first podium for, I think, I think three or four races. Um, but he has shown time and time again this season what, what kind of driver he is. And he needs a championship-winning car in order to become a championship-winning driver, put simply. Yeah, Verstappen put another good performance. Uh, another Verstappen-esque performance. So, car's not really fast enough, but he, he shows incredible determination in the car, even though the car's just not fast enough. And you could sense his frustration afterwards that he felt like they could have, Red Bull could have put more pressure on Mercedes. And we know after, after the race, at least Hamilton was being kept quite honest by Max. Uh, Hamilton was was pushing and keeping an eye on the gap constantly. But he knew Hamilton, if he let off a bit, then Max would start crawling into his lead. And, you know, Hamilton liked his big old safety buffer. So, yeah. Very impressive, another impressive performance at Max Verstappen, and the champion, the, the the championship to second place goes on. That that's the battle we all want to see, the battle for second. Yes, um, coming third today was not Sergio Perez. He was he ran such a great race sack. Um, he was doing so, but managed the tires beautifully, outperforming that racing point once again in what might be one of his. Final races in Formula One. He had third in the bag until lap 54 of 56, where his MGUK, I think it was reported, just gave out. His car caught on fire in quite dramatic fashion, and he was denied his podium. How heartbreaking. That sounded sarcastic. Oh, was, I, I'm being serious. I, I was heartbroken. It, it, it was cruel, wasn't it? It was just unbelievable. This is a guy who probably is in his last three races, even though he really shouldn't be. And... There was a brilliant result like that. He could have, for the first time in his career, he could have had consecutive podium finishes. And then with only a few laps to go, his his car lets him down. And the, the Mercedes engine, the probably the best engine on the grid, lets him down. Ah, it was it was heartbreaking to see. And you you could see by the the way he reacted when he got out of the car, the way he had his head up against the against the wall, and uh, it was it was painful to watch. But I mean, that's part of the game. I mean. Every driver at some point in their career will have benefited from someone else's unreliability and as a result, kind of got to just accept that when it happens to you, it happens to you. But he did say, I think after the race, which I thought was very honourable, he said, you know what, a podium in the context of what happened today as a whole in the race is actually not that big a deal. So I think he'll he'll move on. He'll know he's got the pace. He knows that the oval circuit coming up, the outer circuit that's coming up next is is probably going to suit the racing point car and the Mercedes engines quite well. So just regroup and go again. It wasn't his fault, so he's got nothing to feel bad about, really. I, what what was so bad about that that retirement is that I think at the start of the lap, you could see smoke coming out of the car satchin. And then, like, over the course of the lap, the smoke got worse and worse and worse, and then it caught on fire. So it was like a, like, like you know, we knew this impending doom was coming, and it was just... It was so sad that it was so drawn out. Um, yeah, I, I feel so bad. 
Yeah, you would have thought maybe by turn four or something would have pulled over, but the guy just wanted to see if he can continue, can then, of course, it lit up in flames. Uh, very, very heartbreaking for Perez, but, you know, Alex Album, he's there when he needs to be there. Yes, he's about 27 seconds, seven seconds off Max Verstappen. But, you know, right place, right time. You could argue that if, you know, if Perez's engine did make it to the end of the race, he had to go into like lower power setting or something to conserve it. Albon could have got past anyways. Could have ended up third on the podium anyways. It was his destiny, you could argue. But there we go. I think it's the destiny for Mercedes to be to be given an, another constructors' championship next year with Red Bull half of their car being completely useless again. But I think that's another matter entirely. Well, was I, that conspiracy theory somebody posted? Like Toto <laughs> Wolf pressing the switch on Perez's engine yeah. to make sure that Albon stays <laughs> in the seat for next year. I, I think that is. I think honestly, right? I know that we like are quite mean to Albon on this pod. All right, I know that I'm quite mean to Albon on this pod. Yeah, it's just you, mate. We, but, we love Albon. We think he's the best driver. Do I so. think this is the outcome Mercedes wanted in terms of consolidating their team points total for next year? Yes. Do I think this is the outcome Red Bull wanted? No. Do I think they wanted an excuse to move on from Albon? Yes. And now, as a result, we might not see Sergio Perez again in Formula One next year. And from I a fan perspective, if I have to Perez and, and Albon, I'd hope that Perez would have gotten his podium and, and, and you know, someone snap him up. And now Albon's bought himself another half season with that podium and, and you know, here we are. So did I want, from the point of view of the competitiveness of the sport, you know, I, I think that was a bad result for everyone, to be honest. Speaking of challenges to, um, to Mercedes next year, McLaren came fourth and fifth. Uh, in a very nice result for the team. I'm kidding, by the way. Um, but they do have Mercedes engines next year. Uh, <laughs> Ashwin's a big thumbs up. Um, will the uh, Norris-Ricardo combination work? I mean, they had a great race today, as we said. Science had a mare in qualifying yesterday with that weird lockup that we might get yeah. into. Um, starting 15th and coming back to finishing 5th. I think it's like the second race in a row that he's done that. Yeah, um, yeah. That was a very good, well-run race by McLaren, certainly. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm really happy. McLaren's my team. Um, they've been pretty awful for the last five years, but um, hopefully with the Mercedes engine in, they could be on the way up. I never really thought over the last few years that, this, uh, that the, sh- the chassis was the main issue. I think they have the budget and the technological ability to make that work. And with Mercedes power, I hope you know that that team can, can get, it, get, get, get on the podium again. Um, a team that, that on a per-race basis until this Mercedes team at least was, was the, one of the most successful in Formula 1 history. Um, and, you know, I just, just really want to see them up there again. And I hope that all fans of the sport do. As, you know, a good McLaren and a good Ferrari and, and a, you know, if you can, a good Williams is, is, is good for the sport. Um, and Ricardo and, and Norris are both both fast drivers. Norris avoided a lot of, of, a lot of danger in this race and it was an underappreciated performance. Came, came solidly. I think he came sixth. Um, and fourth, 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 sorry, yeah, and oh yeah, because of per- because of Perez, <laughs> yeah, he came fourth, and um, he drove well. He, he avoided all the dramas of the of the frequent stoppages and the safety cars, and he kept to himself. And um, you know, I think that was an underappreciated performance. At times, I'd like to see more from Norris actually push on a bit. He's had a few positions outside the points where I feel he could have pushed on a bit further and, and got gotten into tenth or ninth. But other than that, I, I can't complain about a Norris Ricardo partnership next year from a McLaren point of view to be honest I, I think that'll be good and science on Leclerc was a bit of a tasty tasty battle as well for next year uh, I think a bit of a nice overtaking maneuver there in the race so that was quite cool it was it was a really sad feature of the race that Ferrari <laughs> just kept getting overtaken like I was just I think at one point um Vettel got overtaken by this, uh, an Alfa Romeo which is really just the last straw like I can't it's just so depressing. Oh, right. I managed we still to have next next weekend to deal with. Oh yeah! Oh no! Yay. Oh. Um, Sebastian <laughs> Vettel came something like thirteenth or something. Was it lower than that? It could have been lower. And he said during the race, "This car can feels completely different to Friday and Saturday." Like, how does that... I've never driven my Audi A3 and then thought this feels like a Bugatti Veyron. Like, how has that happened, Sachin? Uh, I think it was something to do with the tyres not working. We've seen this before with these Pirellis. One said, you put another set of the soft, so another shit. So uh, I think it's something to do with the tyres. 
just not working on that car. That particular set of tyres not working on that car. Because I think when he he uh, had to stop and he switched onto the to the the hard tyres at the end, it, it felt better and he's able to climb. He was dead last at one point. He was dead last at the end of his first stint. Dead so last at the pace as well. That's the yeah. So the, man, the fact that he managed to not be dead last at the end of the race was, uh, I think, that was due to his tyres. Well, I mean, um, I'm sure you guys know that he's auctioning off his helmet from this race, which I think is going to be the least amount of money ever paid. It's just an underwhelming and horrible um, race for Ferrari. Uh, Gasly came sick, uh, Zach. Um, he got kind of bailed out by the safety car at the end, obviously caused by Perez's fire, because he was on really old tyres with um, with the Renaults really catching up to him. But he did hold on for sixth place in the end. Um yeah, great result for him. I thought that was brilliant. I thought it was the sort of drive that he really needs to to show. I mean, we know he's he's a proven winner. He, he capitalised on an opportunity and he took it and ran with it. But I think to see results like this show that Pierre is is absolutely deserving of, of his seat in Formula 1 when you consider that he had to do all that tyre management. OK, yes, he was bailed out by the safety car, but that's part of racing. That's, yeah, that's, his, that's just luck. He just drove a brilliant race. And I think uh, if Sonoda ends up as his teammate next year, he's going to have a very high bar, Sonoda, in terms of uh, Pierre Gasly as his teammate. But he's also going to have a very good teammate to learn from as well. I think when we've seen races like that, it's uh, it's very impressive. But I think at the same time, we should also note, it's probably not a surprise that he did so well in this race when you consider how he did in 2018 in the then Toro Rosso. He was fourth in that race. So actually, he's got form around this track. and. Yeah, top stuff. Well done, Pierre. Was was mm. my uh, my thoughts. Well it's a shame done. that Kvyat wasn't there. Am I the only one who simps for like Gasly Ocon re- like French partnership, like resolving their friendship that would end badly. Like at Renault? That, that would end badly, yeah, but badly. I think it would be great to watch. Friends. I think it would be because oh, because I don't know if you guys are familiar with the story, but they were like really good friends growing up, but then they kind of had on track disputes and stuff that I kind of soured their friendship. But like. The dynamics in that garage, like a pay-per-view match, like a Miss Martial Arts act. Because, you know, really be a sort of wrestling tag team, you know, about like the five or sixth race that they'll be together. I like, you know, it would be nice, like the first couple of races, you know, being professional. And then he'll be like, oh, no, why do you let him out the pits first? Or, oh, you let me, or oh, you let me in his dirty air? Or, no, it will be like, Esteban is faster than you in about race four, and then and then about race five we'll have a bit of a, a bit of a scrap across the garage. I think. I, 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 I just think it'd be cool, like the French teammates of the French team. I don't know, but yeah, Gazi looks to have that AlphaTauri seat, um, and he is uh, definitely a prospect. I mean, um, I do want to see him at a, a faster team, but they just there aren't the seats right now to to accommodate him. Um, the battle for the championship has really been for the championship the third in the championship has really been turned on its head because uh now mclaren have stormed to the lead followed by racing point who had that disastrous race and renault behind who i think they i think they kind of underperformed in this race not gonna lie um I, they had that mix up with the teammates halfway through the race like ocon wouldn't let ricardo by despite being on an alternate strategy um and renault i don't know have they thrown away Third in the championship, I feel like that was within their grasp, given the pace that they've shown at times this season. I don't know what you think, Sachin. Well, they've only had like a lot of late season pace. I mean, remember at the beginning of the year, they were really struggling in the two Austria races, and they only really unlocked performance come the end of the first Silverstone race and in going to the second Silverstone race. So they've really been on the back foot for the first half of this year, and only with Daniel Ricciardo have they come good. I guess the other factor in Renault's struggle this year has been their span knock-on. He's not really been up to pace with Ricardo, and at the times where he has been somewhat close to Ricardo, he's been severely unlucky with multiple DNFs. You know, how many times have we seen Esteban Ocon retire from a race this year? You can, you know, go go through the results and see it's probably more five or six. While on the other hand, you have McLaren, who are two consistent drivers who are you know, capable of scoring, both of them are capable of scoring points. And then you have Racing Point, who some weekends end up being the class of the of the midfield, and other weekends they're really scrapping for the last points. So 
It is getting tight. Uh, next weekend, as we said, should favor the race Mark's engines. But it's going to come down to Abu Dhabi, so that will be at least something to look forward to at that horrific racetrack. Yeah, I'm not looking forward to going to Abu Dhabi. We will be reviewing it at the symposium because, well, we have to, don't we? Um, you guys, you guys are waiting for our takes on, on uh, sector one. What a what a great piece of racetrack. Um, anyway, um, finally for today, Ferrari World, Ferrari World. You know, excellent venue, excellent track. You know. Definitely not to the limit, I think what I've been actually obliged to say. Oh, mate, Ferrari, Ferrari World have destroyed the hairpin before the straight. <laughs> you look at the way... Uh, if their Ferrari World wasn't there, they could put the grandstands a bit further back, they'd get rid of the super chicane, and then they could have a nice clean exit onto... Ah, oh, that Ferrari World. That, that chicane, right, is like one of the worst... Like, I don't understand why it exists. Like, it's just the slow, it's it's just a slow two corners. It's terrible. It's terrible. don't like it. <laughs> um let's move on today this week we won't be having a clown of the day because of the issues unless you guys are heartless enough to nominate one <laughs> so i've really I've really put you in the corner here i'm just gonna say that our heroes of the day this yeah. won't be around forever because um well i mean we like we like being more critical than 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 being more being positive but dr ian roberts alan van der Merwe, and the the, Bahra- the Bahraini Marshall team, except that stupid Marshall that ran across the track, um, just like du- <laughs> during a green flag conditions. Like, no, no, bad, bad. Um, you get the heroes of the day for your heroic actions. Um, and obviously we all at the symposium wish Grosjean a happy and speedy recovery. Um, that concludes this week's episode of the Symposium's F1 podcast. Uh, thank you guys for joining me. Thank Good you, boy. Sachin. Thank you. For having Ash. Cheers. And Zach. Thanks. See you next time. Bye-bye.